0: You're listening to The Bob Zadak Show, a full hour of libertarian discussion with the smartest guests on radio. Live, spontaneous, and thoughtful. It's the show of ideas, not attitude. Now, your host, Bob Zadak. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Bob Zadig Show, the longest-running live libertarian talk radio show on all of radio. Every Sunday, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, live. We are now and always the show of ideas, never, ever once the show of attitude. Thank you so much for listening this Sunday morning. Well, we have the coronavirus now to be concerned about. Now, this is not a show... On public health, per se, uh, we are a show which examines and tries to preserve liberty against government encroachments. So what in the world does the coronavirus? what is it doing on a liberty-oriented radio program? Well, the answer is obvious, because the coronavirus, like 9-11, like many other sudden, unexpected existential or apparently existential threats or apparently threats to our well-being as Americans whenever one of these threats pop up and they have is the characteristics they were unprepared for and they are somewhat scary and the press is all over it to encourage that fear and to exacerbate it perhaps whenever one of these threats pop up government is quick to act now one would expect i guess government to act but the action they follow is an immediate exertion of new powers over us citizens every one of these events what 911 any event you want it immediately results in newfound or Dusted off, but existing governmental powers, and now we have the quarantine, the limitation on movement of both Americans and citizens from the rest of the world, the quarantine and the like. And is this assertion of governmental power appropriate? Is it constitutional? And does it represent proof positive? And how quick government is to act to? to accept and to assert more power over us. Uh, I, I am delighted to welcome to the show this morning uh, Jeffrey Tucker. Jeffrey is the editorial director of the American Institute for Economic Research, a must-read, an organization you must follow. He's the author of thousands of articles in scholarly press, in the public press, um, eight books in five languages, and most recently, and we will discuss it this morning, The Market Loves You, his 2019 book, which has been widely received with very, very strong positive reviews. He's also the editor of The Best of B.C.'s. And most recently, he has written an article, which will be the subject of this morning's conversation, Must Government Save Us from the Coronavirus? Uh, Jeffrey, welcome to the show this morning
1: my pleasure to be here.
0: Thanks for having me. Now, Jeffrey, we'll start with, uh, because it is recently finished and published, uh, your book, The Market Loves You, Why You Should Love It Back. Does the market, uh, how can a market love anybody? And what is there that participants in the market, and of course market means free market, what is it that they should love back to that market, that environment?
1: Well, okay. Well, it goes like this. The, uh, I started with a book organized around uh, C.F. Lewis's Four Loves. So there are many different levels of love. In English, we just have one word. But in Greek, there are four. It includes uh, friendship and, and uh, uh, affection and desire to suffer self-sacrifice, eros. And uh, also the little, little kind of uh, mixed, you know, high level of love that that God has for us and vice versa. So, so there are many different uh, aspects of love, but, but it all comes down to kind of a, uh, a feeling of, of an affection that you have for so others, an appreciation. And, you know, the market is, we use this word market, sometimes we think we're just being like a financial market or it's involved with money, or maybe it's uh, uh, the morally barren place, this has not been true. The market just consists of three individuals training with each other, innovating, persuading each other, working together, benefiting from each other's existence in life, finding value in each other's work. And, uh, I, I, and, and to my mind, the market is, 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 a, is a primary by, way by which we experience uh, our own value and come to value other people uh, way which we otherwise wouldn't. So that's one way in which the market, uh, is, is a, is a venue for the expression of, of love and affection. A lot of our friendships, uh, are built in the market setting. Think all the professional relationships you have. They're oftentimes tighter than, than any other relationships you have in life. Uh, there's a funny way, too, in which the market shows us love from people we don't know. So, we buy products every day. We take it for granted. We go to Amazon. We go to eBay. We shop everywhere. And there are millions of people working to bring us something that we want and inviting us to buy it. We won't meet them. We don't know them. But it's an expression of love on of, of part of those people for us and our choices. And I'm sometimes in, in all of it. I mean, I, I go into Walmart and sit there in shock. You know, said that, This gigantic building was erected for me. Gives me infinite choice in anything that I want, and uh, invites me to accept or reject the option. You know, that's to me, that's a very beautiful, benevolent uh, kind of institution, and it's what we should be going for. I mean, Lord knows government is not is um, not treat us the same way. Mostly government treats as the enemy um, somebody to be to be uh, pulled over and hectored and harassed and taxed and bullied and drafted. Or quarantined, for that matter. So, the point of the book is, is to develop within uh, my readers a, uh, a deeper affection and appreciation for the market order and what it does for our
0: lives. What your, th- what the thesis of your book, what it got me thinking about is, and I think about how there is this resistance, this fear, and most importantly, a misunderstanding of the operation of the free market, uh, especially by the millennial, by the youngest uh, cohort of voters, uh, where they sort of favor less uh, free market. And I thought of a parallel, which I don't recall ever being used to help that generation explain the markets. And the parallel is, believe it or not, and this was my thought process was invited by your book, was dating. Dating is a very free market. People enter into the dating, seeking a mate uh, environment, and they exercise judgment. They have very little compulsion, very little protection from the government in making the right choice of a mate. They are out there, In a matter of speaking, all alone, trying to make the right decision, often making the wrong decision, suffering from the wrong decision, but not being resentful. Nobody in that marketplace seems to cry out, why isn't there governmental protection? Why isn't government screening who is allowed (laughs) to meet up with me? But nobody does that. So we have a generation which... Which, and I thought of this, Jeffrey, by, by the explanation you just gave in your book. Why is that free market cherished and the free market in something equally important, which is selling an hour of your time in exchanging your property for somebody else's property? Why, is, why does the free market appear to them not to work? When the free market in dating, in finding a mate, while it doesn't always work, that is, sometimes you make a bad choice, but nobody complains that the bad choice was caused by not enough governmental protection. You invite, in your book, a very interesting parallel.
1: Well, uh, this is an excellent uh, way of thinking, actually, What's fascinating about that is, you know, we would not tolerate government intervention in our, in our daily lives and in in, in the, who we mix it up with, you know, who we fall in love with, who we marry. Uh, we would never tolerate something like that. Um, in fact, um, I was just looking at some statistics. It turns out 40% of couples nowadays meet through technology, through online dating apps and that sort of thing. There's a gigantic free market. It's getting ever freer. We've never had that opportunity. That uh, the market has given us today to meet the right person for in our lives, um, and we would never tolerate that. But what's, what's fascinating about this about this topic is that is that if you want to set out to, for government to plan society, and that's your goal, you're like a socialist or a central planner or something like that. You, forget about about sausages and, and wind power and know uh, all the, all the, all the, everything else that they want to regulate, just social security and everything else. you need to start with, uh, with, uh, with managing the daily market because that gets to the heart of demographics. That's something that government has to control first before it can control physical resources. And what's interesting if you look back in history, socialist ideology has always began, with this proposition, we cannot just let people run around procreating, meeting who they want, telling their love what they want, procreating how they want. We have to control that first. And we've seen experiments in this direction. I mean, China's uh, one child per family law was exactly uh, that. And, uh, you know, this is why Orwell wrote about this kind of uh, controls over demographics and birth and coupling. And it appears too in The Brave New World by uh, Huxley. Um, yeah, I agree with you. This should be the first thing that governments should seek to control if they were really consistent about wanting to manage society. They don't, because they know that supremely offensive people will never put up with it. But as you say, if that's offensive and you shouldn't put up with that, nor should you put up with government regulating things like your wages, you know, your health care, uh, your, your travel, or... Uh, what you know, uh, what what substances you want to consume, that that sort of thing. So, um, a consistent defense of the free market would yes advocate for a uh, free market in dating, but a free market in everything else too. You know, from millennial attitudes towards uh, uh, economics and the uh, free market, I really think what we have here is just a tremendous confusion born of economic ignorance. Those people don't take economics in college. All they know is that they're financially strapped, you know, as a result of, of college debts they should have never undertaken, and they're frustrated with the job market because it's not paying them what they want, uh, given their credentials that they spent four years earning. So then they turn against the market and pretend that they're socialist. I, I run into this absolutely all the time, and it's it's mind blowing, and I get impatient with it. You know, I know for sure that if I could spend. An hour with a uh, any socialist under the age of thirty, I could get that person to profoundly question their, their beliefs, and I've, I've done this in the past, and they have shaken, and they come back to me later and say, "Okay, I'm no longer a socialist. I was dumb." You know, the problem is, how do you get to them? You know, that's the that's the big issue.
0: We got well, Jeffrey, standards. your book uh, in reading your book, I think the phrase. That will, quote, get to them, the phrase you just used, is the way to explain socialism is socialism is an arranged marriage in economics. It's an economic arranged marriage where somebody external decides... How you make these important decisions, whether it's how you hire a doctor or a lawyer, licensing laws, uh, what products you're allowed to buy, what products you're allowed to consume. If if you abhor arranged marriages, then socialism is an arranged marriage on steroids. There's your yeah, next book, a, Jeffrey. Well,
1: it's good. I, I, I'll probably just take all these ideas and put them in an article, so thank you. <laughs> But I, you know, the question and 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 the freedom of association in in partnering, uh, particularly with sexual partnerships, is a huge topic, and it was the topic of my previous book called uh, Right Wing Collectivism, where I actually did spend an entire book talking about the history of demographic panic and government planning. I mean, it was the progressives uh, of the turn of the century, turn of the twentieth century, that wanted to use eugenics and. And marriage licensing laws. People don't know this really, but the reason we have to get a license to get married is, is because of a, a panic on the part of government that that the wrong people were hooking up, and it was leading oh, to uh, I, I, a diminution in the quality of the population. It's true.
0: The original, the first marriage, the first marriage licensing statutes were in New England in the eighteen twenties, and the first. And the the reason behind them, if you read what was in the media at the time, was there was a fear that white women were marrying Asians, mulattoes, and imbeciles. And in order to prevent that, we had to license them. So that's the way you can... Preserve the species. So you're quite right. That yeah. little story about American history has a very ugly past. And can
1: you believe that we still have all these marriage licenses today?
0: We and do. We
1: do. There's no move even to get rid of them. I mean, it's kind of an incredible thing. I mean, the Supreme Court had this judgment a few years ago that uh, mandated that uh, marriage marriage be available to same-sex partners. And I favor the idea of Sweden in that respect, but the idea that there should have ever been a government mandate in the first place is ridiculous. And the government mandate comes about because of the previous laws of putting government charges distributing marriage licenses. If the government wasn't ever involved in the marriage industry in the, in the first place, there would have been no reason for a Supreme Court for all this crazy debate that we're having today. So we need to get government out of the marriage marketplace. Entirely no marriage licenses. That's just utterly absurd. And you're right. It was a
0: racial fear,
1: but it was also just a, a general fear that. Well, there's more than that. It was yeah that the fear that you were you were marrying somebody uh, that was stupider than you, and so you would reduce the quality of the population. Um, and it really had a eugenic orientation to it. The idea was to prevent some people from procreating. Back in those days, there was a widespread belief, and this was true all the way into the 1910s and 1920s, that if they could stop people from getting married or stop them from working, which is one of the reasons for minimum wage loss, then they could stop them from procreating, which is utterly ridiculous, we know now, but that's what they believe.
0: Now, when you say, get the government out of... That sentence has a myriad, an infinite number of very appropriate endings, which is a wonderful segue into your recent article, which was a wonderful piece, Jeffrey, and I thank you for that. Okay. Um, to, to set a little groundwork, and in my introduction, um, I equated what's going on with the government reaction and, and the media reaction, and therefore the public's reaction, because the public reacts based upon what they are told or what they learn from the media, for better or for worse. But I'd like to flash back, because it's in recent memory, to 9-11. 9-11 was sudden, It all of a sudden, it was there. People were frightened, people felt... A huge threat which they could not get their brains around. How serious was it? Were we about to be invaded? Was this the end of everything? And within minutes, literally within minutes, we had draconian federal statutes passed without any examination. In fact, they had to have been written before, just waiting for the appropriate crisis. Now, that's me being a conspiracy theorist, and maybe that's no, inappropriate. No, that's,
1: not a, that's but not, a, it's not a conspiracy theory. That's absolutely uh, documented. I mean, all the plans for everything that happened after 9-11 were laid out five, ten years earlier. So you're exactly right about that. It was just the 9-11...
0: By the... By, so therefore, so and and the government there was no debate, nobody discussed, nobody said, "Hold on a second, let's take a deep breath and think this through." It just happened, and the public was all for it. There was no opposition in Congress, no opposition in the press, no opposition in the public. It just was a maybe the single most immediate mass surrender of freedom in favor of the government that ever existed in American history. It was sudden, and it was massive. Well, and we still have it. Remember, we still have it. Those laws have not been diminished or repealed. So now we have, Jeffrey, the coronavirus. Again, a sudden threat. One day it wasn't here. One day it was, and nobody knew anything about it, and here we, and so we have the threat, and nobody is examining how serious it is. That it's nobody until you, Jeffrey, and we'll get into your, your piece because it's wonderful, and the government's reaction to it, um, and how the government has once again assumed, in in a small degree almost like martial law in some respects. I don't want to get alarmist about this. So, Jeffrey, we have about uh, four minutes before we go to break now, but just start us off on the coronavirus and give us an introduction to, is there a possibility, I dare say a real possibility, that the virus itself, the threat of the virus, is massively overstated with Misunderstood data.
1: That, but that's been true in every time in modern history where one of these diseases come along. It's been massive panic. And when I was a kid, there was a, a fear about the the swine flu, and it turned out the the only people who really had the fatal swine flu and people that that got the uh, vaccination for it. I mean, that was that was back when, you know That was back in the late late 1970s. So um, that was my introduction to disease panics. But it's still true um, ever since, and I'm a, a, a panic. I think that under every president has one of these things, and everybody freaks up out, out about the coming pandemic. Whenever you think about this, you have to consider the fact that the flu kills fifty thousand people in the United States every single year the flu. So, you know, if you run the numbers, uh, a person coming from China to the U.S. has a 10,000% greater chance of contracting the flu uh, even safely than an American traveling in China has to contract the coronavirus. So that's, that's just what the data shows right now. And, you know, we've seen over the last week um, uh, China now reporting uh, a diminution in the number of uh, the, the rate of death and the, the number of people infected. Now, you can trust those numbers or not. I'm inclined to think that that from every case we've ever seen that there's wildly exaggerated because pe- people have in their minds uh, visions of, of black death and that sort of thing, and then they, as you said, they just panic and they say, oh government do something, quarantine people uh, get the infected away from me but you know the problem is that these, these powers are easy to abuse, they certainly will be abused, we've seen this on uh, the cruise ship uh, that was uh, that, uh, the, the bombing Princess, where where 400 Americans were uh, were quarantined on a ship with uh, sick people for two weeks they couldn't leave, uh, and and people are, are complained about it. And said, well, "This is crazy. I feel like I'm I'm in prison. Um, you know what is going on here?" And then they botched the disease. They're now finally flying off the boat, but they're going to be sent to Tokyo for two weeks and, and quarantined again. So um, and and these people uh, they talk about just the sheer irrationality of the entire thing. So this government knows who's sick, who's not sick, which they do not know this. These tests are all, everybody recognizes your tests are ridiculous. And and the idea that the government's gonna make a decision for you. Um, and what, what you're going to do with the threat of disease, uh, better than you can make yourself, is utterly prost- preposterous, but it's a serious, serious danger. I wrote my article January 27th. Here we are. Um, you Know two weeks later, a little more than two weeks later, and I would say the threat of the quarantine power being used in the United States is much greater now than when I wrote the article.
0: And in your article, which we'll cover soon, we get back from our 30 second break, but in your article, you indicate how because most of the data is coming from China at how unreliable that data is, and especially in the ratio which you explained in your article between the number of people who contracted the disease and the fatalities. And that explanation of the calculation and how off it could be caught my attention, as it will catch the attention of our listeners, because if the data is exaggerated, that means the reaction is exaggerated, that means the loss of liberty is for no good reason, so there is a chain effect. We'll learn about that in about 30 seconds when we come back. I'm speaking with uh, Jeffrey Tucker. Jeffrey has just written a book, uh, an article, an important article, Must Government Save Us? from the coronavirus. We'll be back in 30 short seconds. Please stay tuned. I'm Bob Zadek broadcasting here every Sunday morning at 8. Remember the free speech movement? Started in Berkeley in the 60s. At Berkeley today, students protest against free speech and picket when a controversial, usually conservative speaker is scheduled. At other top universities, professors are terrified of their students. The free exchange of all ideas has disappeared. My new book, The Bubble, explores how higher education became America's most overrated product. Students spend four critical years of their lives in an expensive bubble of indoctrination, and they're creating a second bubble in the process. Luckily, a small, dedicated minority is fighting back against repressive campus speech codes and disinvitation campaigns. Learn how universities have created a bubble within a bubble, a trillion dollar financial bubble in student loan debt propped up by a bubble that protects from offensive speech. Now some are even suggesting student loan forgiveness. It's time to burst the bubble book now available at bobzadeck.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Bob Zadig Show, longest-running live libertarian talk radio show on all of radio, the show always of ideas, never once the show of attitude. This morning, we are speaking with uh, Jeffrey Tucker. Jeffrey has written an important article on the coronavirus, not with a prescription that is not a medical prescription, but Jeffrey uh, points out to us how the coronavirus, based upon probably incorrect data, maybe grossly incorrect data, has given the government an opportunity to hopefully temporarily, we will see, seize somewhat extraordinary, probably lawful, but extraordinary powers over its citizens' right of movement uh, and uh, of personal freedom. And also right before the break, Jeffrey pointed out that a lot of the attention is directed on people, Chinese um, and Asians in general, and Great attention is played uh, is is paid to their movement into the United States. So it's starting to have. And if you there's right now incidents, individual anecdotes in the press about drivers, Uber and Lyft drivers being circumspect about picking up Asians, uh, being concerned. There's all this bordering on hysteria. And Jeffrey, when I started to read that. I got really frightened because we have to flash back to the Japanese internment during World War II. Before that, there were incidents in the end of the 19th century about the internment of Chinese nationals for various fears of disease. So this has unpleasant if not ugly components to it which have a history so if i am and others are concerned it's not without good cause there has been a history of using or these experiences such as the coronavirus fear to give people an outlet for really unpleasant and wrong-headed racial biases. So this has, yeah. in the mix, this has a lot which is very similar to other events in our history.
1: That's right. And i and the, the, okay. sorry to be the one to bring this up, but there would have been no uh, uh, force, forcing the Jews into the ghetto in World War II without quarantine powers. The, the Nazi powers were entirely based on this, this idea of quarantine. And then that led to a greater degree of sickness and then rounding up in cattle cars and eventually, uh, you know, a panic and extermination um, you know, as, uh, through many means including gas chambers um, it all began with uh, the quarantine of people based on uh, de- demographics uh, uh, government power and so, they, you know, there should have never been any government quarantine since of uh, course, as you say, in that exact same period, the U.S. used them for the Japanese, all based on demographics and so can you imagine, uh, you, know, you know, there's very little you can actually trust the government with at, at all, if it's not, nothing at all, but the idea is they're going to be able to determine whether you're sick, or, to what extent you're sick, how big the risk is of infection, of whether your life is going to die, and the conditions under which you're going to be, keep yourself safe and keep others safe from you, and we're going to put government in charge of all that, is utterly crazy. And you see this in China right now, they, <laughs> there's a little tool that they use. This is why I trust of data. There's a little tool they use that's a kind of a, a, a distance thermometer. And the other is you put it up next to the person's head and and squeeze the trigger and it tells you their temperature. Um, and it, it depending on what the temperature is, that's what they consider a person to be infected or not. So um uh, everybody registers positive is considered infected, the and as in regimen negative negative is considered not infected. But these these tools are are Unbelievably, they're almost useless. I mean, it's like pseudoscience. Um, if you don't hold it directly against a person's head for a long period of time, um, you're not going to get a good, good registration. The person just, you know, ran from the, from the to catch a bus. Uh, their going to be hot, and that's going to show up in the in the tool. And and the false diagnoses are are infamous with these things. So the yeah, these tools are selling like crazy, and the company that's making it is making a mess. But uh, this is the basis of this. Is, this is how it's acting how many people have it. And it's just with this quick little uh, wave of a, of a magic wand across uh, the person's head. It's it's just ridiculous. And, you can't, and then next thing you know, you're being quarantined with the people who most likely do in fact have this. And then you're the disease. You're you're going to get sicker. So are you're going to get sick for the first time. So, far from protecting anybody, it's actually really dangerous, and people are getting it
0: themselves. Jeffrey, I must confess that when you were explaining this quote tool that was being used in China, I started to smile. Now, why did I smile when you were explaining that? Because you know what I flashed to, Jeffrey? I flashed to TSA. And um, TSA is the same. The tool you described is health theater. It's doing something with some machinery that will have the effect of making us safer. The parallel is undeniable between the 95% failure rate at TSA and the 95% probably failure rate with this silly tool that's being used, both under the guise of protecting the public. Both have the effect Of denying citizens freedom and both based upon this mysterious mysterious tools but the government has the appearance of doing something of being on top of it and yet the, the parallel Jeffrey is inescapable between the two events I was just smiling now when you in your article you made reference to this calculation that I want to just make our friends out there aware of about how off the fatality rate could possibly be based upon data. And data should not be assumed to be trustworthy coming from China. It's not been verified. So help us understand how governments determine by apparently objective calculations how serious the virus is.
1: Well, this is a lot of my information comes from a health economist, a medical history economist uh, uh, named. Um, you get his name. Here? His name is uh, George Lass at the University of Michigan, and he points out. He says, "Look, it's possible that the coronavirus may not be uh, very contagious, and it may not be all that deadly. We don't know yet how many people have mild coronavirus infections that have not come to medical attention." um with small symptoms that look very much like a cold and they could just go away. Based he says, based on data from other coronaviruses, experts believe in the incubation period is about five days. Um, we do not yet know how effective efficiently this coronavirus spreads. And um, he says the, the the fatality rate is a very important in the statistic and epidemiology that's calculated by dividing the number of known deaths by the number of known cases. And right now, it appears to have a fatality rate of about 3%, which is roughly like the flu panic in 1918. But here's the problem. There might, what if there the 100,000 Chinese citizens with mild infections that we don't know about? Um, that would lower the case of fatality. In other words, a lot more mild infections. they lower the fatality rate to about uh, 0.02%, which is identical to the seasonal flu uh, death. And, um, you know, it, it's just an extreme reaction to start quarantining the whole towns and have a, a really a nationwide panic and have the World Health Organization freak out about it when it's just basically, as far as we you know, there's no more or less serious than the flu. But here's the thing to say it really is uh, a deadly panic, which it's not, uh, a deadly disease, which it may not be, that's really pandemically spreading all over the world, which it's not, um, even then, you know, to give government a, a power to, to quarantine people and think that's going to do some good is just crazy. Likely it's going to have the exact reverse effect as the people on, as on, the, uh, on the cruise ship will tell you. They were trapped for two weeks on, on a cruise ship, um, having to accept food into their rooms from people that may or may not be infected. You know, we can't leave these decisions up to government because it will only cause the spreading of disease. And uh, and delay the ability to find a cure, which we will find uh, out more about the coronavirus within about twelve months. Honestly, I can guarantee you, without twelve months, until twelve months, nobody will be talking about the coronavirus. We'll figure out that it's just a, a version of of the flu or a common cold or some virus that has gone untreated, leads to death like anything else, and um, it'll just be you know, it just be a, f- a flash in the past. But meanwhile, okay. you know, if we give government massive uh, powers, as we did after 9-11, um, I mean, it's actually the case. You might find yourself, you know, uh, people in in suits coming to your front door, putting an X on your door and dragging you out and putting you in a quarantine city. That sounds crazy and paranoid, but it's in fact, it's happened. It happened on the cruise ship uh, two weeks ago, and it could happen in your neighborhood tomorrow. And you could say, no, 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 that can never happen. We have a constitution. I and mean, look, the Centers for Disease Control has an honest website right now, uh, which I linked to and quoted at links, a very specific plans for quarantining any elements of the U.S. population that the president wants to do. It all comes from the executive department. If they want to quarantine people, they can do it. They can grab you out of your home and put you in a camp. And there's, you have no rights, no lawyers, no recourse. There's nothing you can do. And if you resist, um, you can be shot on the on the site. Now, what's weird to me, or extremely weird, about the Center uh, for Disease Control's thing is I'm always looking at any time a government's trying to enforce something, you want to know what the penalties are. But, of course, if you resist being taken, you can get shot. And that, that'll never go to court. Um, but according to Center for disease, disease Control, they say, if you resist successfully and get away, then you'll you'll be fined, all right? What's the fine? $1,000. $1,000. $1, Look, I mean, I'm glad to pay $1,000 <laughs> to not be, have me and my family and my friends all taken to a, a, a government camp for coronavirus. You know, that's not a very high price to pay. So if we're up to me and somebody comes by front door, I'm going to have cash in an envelope and say, hey,
0: Here's my fine. Let me go. <laughs> Send them up you know, it's, it's interesting because what's interesting because um, I got curious about the power of the government to, in a way, lock you up and whether yeah. the Constitution even addressed the issue. And there is almost nothing in the Constitution dealing with the power of of quarantine, which means which means if there's nothing in the Constitution, it would mean that you have to look elsewhere for the rules. And then you have to look at the Fourth Amendment um, being locked up without due process. Does that even apply? You end up going back to colonial America when there were quarantines. There was a very old phrase. Um, it's uh, French, I believe. Cordon sanitaire, which is where the government would basically tie a rope around the per- perimeter of certain areas that it felt had to be quarantined and separated from the population. So, in colonial times, there was the exercise of quarantine a lot on ships because ships traveled, they brought disease. So, and believe it or not, there's no Supreme Court precedent. There's no binding authority on what due process rights you have if you are determined by public health officials to be subject to quarantine. I was astonished when I learned that.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. I was astonished. And it's amazing. And this, I don't know if Congress ever voted on this or whatever, but these laws exist. I mean, they've existed for, for decades on the on The Hymn Show The Quarantine Power's on. I guess it'll used the World War II, but we've apologized instead, but we haven't really apologized since we got You know, the government can, can say, oh, sorry about that. Sorry about that. that was a mistake. But actually, it'll, they'll use it again. But it's right there on the Center for Disease Control website. It shows exactly everything you need to know about quarantine power. And it's, it's not justified in any sense. Like, you have literally no right in the case of a pandemic disease. None whatsoever. Actually, you don't even have to wait for the pandemic disease. I mean... The Center for Disease Control can come to where I am right now and say, everybody in western Massachusetts must be rounded up. That's it. For reasons of public safety, and that's it. You're you're, you're going to be on uh, the cattle car driven you're into the camp. And that can happen today with absolutely no legal recourse whatsoever. I mean, I'm I really wondering what happened. I mean, it's possible. I was astonished to learn.
0: Passes. Yeah. I was astonished to learn at how little legal protection citizens have if the government made a mistake, if they quarantined you, quarantined your apartment building, quarantined your city, whether or not there's any recourse at all, whether or not the Supreme Court can even step into that decision. And I was astonished to find there's almost nothing. So I said to myself oh my God, I don't want to get out of control here, but this is a scary governmental power that people are dusting off. Now, there's no suggestion, I, I don't want to sound alarmist, that this is going to be out of control, quarantine is going to be used indiscriminately. I don't fear that, even a little bit. But I do. I am concerned about the fact that uh, this has so many of the earmarks of events in recent memory when we did did result in a expansion of governmental power and a loss of liberty all all under the same political cover of an existential crisis that people are just afraid of in a purely emotional way, not data driven. And they, as you said, Jeffrey, they have this reaction look to the government, to protect us, which is which is a state of mind that is a blank check to the government. And if anything comes out of this show this morning, it is an an invitation to citizens to be alert for government to seize additional power under the political cover of the coronavirus. And I guess uh,
1: uh, I'm sorry. As you say, uh, a lot of it depends upon how panicked the population is. Like right now, I think, like today, uh, people would not put up that. I think there would be a lot of outrage. But if you had a couple of weeks of nonstop CNN broadcasts and MSNBC and presidential speeches and politicians going on about how it's an existential threat, and you get people scared enough, they'll be turning in their neighbors. And that could happen in, in two weeks. I honestly. I think maybe I'm a little more worried about this than you are, actually. I mean, I, 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 you know, I remember 9-11. Everything was normal. Then the next day, we had a totalitarian controls over us. You know, with, uh, uh, airport security was nationalized, and and we have uh, internal controls. And, and right now, we have inter- already internal passports. You can't even board uh, a domestic flight come the end of this year. You won't be able to board a domestic flight without a passport or a... Um, or a driver's license that uh, covers, you, 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 that gives you special permission to do so. So that comes out of nine eleven, and it's you know all these years later we're still we're still experiencing the effects of that. And I don't see, I don't see any public protest about this internal passports. I mean that this happened while we were sleeping, and nobody's I don't I don't know A I R writes about it, but I don't see anybody else writing about it. So yeah, you know, we shouldn't be uh, we shouldn't be sanguine about this. I think this. I think this power is real, and it, it can come to us. It can be used. And and let's not forget the government's always looking for some big excuse to enact more totalitarian controls over us. That's what they do. And a disease, a pandemic disease, is as good as excuses as any excuse out there, even if you have to falsify
0: the data. Another interesting aspect um, of the coronavirus event Uh, and this is sort of good news if you can accept that label, and that is, and this didn't get a lot of media attention, China, because they ran short of necessary supplies like face masks and there's a lot of other supplies that they ran out of uh, because of the run on the purchases of them, China has eliminated or dramatically reduced the tariffs on all this stuff. So this has been, uh, in a funny way, this has had as a economic positive step, the appreciation that tariffs In preventing the flow of goods, something I know you care about a great deal, Jeffrey, Uh, the tariffs have been quietly reduced to invite the flow of goods. And maybe, maybe when this is over, uh, the Chinese and our US administration will realize it's better to have the goods than to protect that allegedly protect the jobs. So who knows? There might be some bright lights in this whole experience.
1: Well, you know, it's funny you should say that. I didn't even think about that until Bruce Shandell, an economist, wrote an article for AIER and he said that that could be one of the effects of the coronavirus in the in the long run is a free trade. And he's hired certain historical precedents in the past that a disease panics actually lead to greater flow of goods. And I was really intrigued by that. I thought, how could that be? But he cited a lot of a lot of history, and uh, there might be a, a, a point to that. Um, you know, the other thing is it's also possible that you mentioned, you mentioned that some people uh, have shown discriminatory attitudes towards uh, Asian peoples as a result of this coronavirus, and that's certainly true, but also it could increase people's sense of sympathy uh, towards uh, China and uh, lead to a diminution of this. Cold War style uh, environment that's been cultivated by the uh, Trump administration over the last three years, and maybe maybe increase ties between us, and, and underscore the need for international cooperation for uh, disease control and uh, medical research and um, uh, the various therapies, and uh, the trading of goods. So, I think all that's very possible. I think that would be the best outcome of this. If that does happen, that would
0: be wonderful. One can only hope that we learn the lessons of history from this experience in making reference to how the, the fear takes over people. It, it wasn't a long time ago. In 1900, uh, in San Francisco, uh, there was a, a fear of, of all things, bubonic plague and san francisco the city of san francisco promptly quarantined 25,000 residents of san francisco chinese descent and not only that but they forced them to be injected with a a virus with I'm oh, sorry with an injection to cure the the bubonic plague it turned out that the whole exercise was totally pointless and there was damage from the injection. Now, just imagine, we are talking about citizens of the United States being forced to accept an injection for no other reason than they were of Chinese descent. And this is not in the Dark Ages. This is in 1900 in San Francisco. So I just would remind our listeners that do not be sanguine just because, well, we're more enlightened now. 1900, there was plenty of enlightenment. And notwithstanding that, how easy it was for an American city and the population to succumb to these fears. So to me, as we wind down, Jeffrey, the lesson if, if it's not too early, the lesson of the coronavirus is, of course, intelligent steps should be taken, but we must be super vigilant to not allow this to be an excuse for the ugly exercise of governmental power in a way that it compromises our core values. The core values must triumph Overall, That's the most important. And we certainly expect the government to take steps to protect us within very limited uh, range of options. But we must always guard our freedom. Because once it's surrendered, we don't get it back. Now, Jeffrey, how could our friends out there follow your writings and the work of your organization?
1: Well, my recommendation is that uh, people go to AIER.org and subscribe to our daily email where we do share all kinds of economic wisdom every single day. I mean, we've got 2 million uh, subscribers uh, right now, uh, readers on our website, and we'd welcome anybody to join us. I write there almost every day, but I've got thousands of articles up there, and, and I'm so glad to have such good colleagues who are all about economic research, we try to put the best resources out there and solely the public service is reflections of our historic mission and uh welcome anybody to, to
0: join us. Jeffrey you do great work at AEIR. I recommend to our listeners out there that they, they make it a regular part of their uh, of their day to check out your writing. Thank you so much for giving us an hour of your time this Sunday. Bob Zadik saying so long for now. I'll be back of course next Sunday.